0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with the California-based Akhil Amar today. Hello, Akhil.
1: Hey, Andy. I'll be back on the East Coast later this week. And later this week, because we're recording this on Monday for upload Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, later this week, we're going to have a bunch of stuff from the East Coast. I'll be back on the East Coast. And by from the East Coast, of course, I mean that the Supreme Court has about ten cases left as of Monday, we're expecting them to be handed down this week. We're expecting, among other things, Moore versus Harper, the the independent state legislature, very case to be handed down. Of course, we have no inside information about which day and and what outcome, and whether they're going to dismiss the case or moot it for various technical reasons that we've talked about, or actually reach the merits. And some justices may do one thing, and others. Another thing that I will be back on the East Coast and uh, stay tuned because we, we may even you know ha- have some breaking news a- about that.
0: OK, well, I'm um, interrupting myself and Akil to pass along the news, uh, news received after we recorded, but before we posted this podcast news that many of you no doubt know by now, namely that the Supreme Court has indeed ruled uh, in Moore versus Harper. They not only proceeded to rule on the merits and not moot or dig the case, but they did so with a resounding opinion authored by Chief Justice Roberts, which dealt a death blow to the so-called independent state legislature theory, which reiterated the rationales of AIRC and Rucho and Smiley and other important precedents, and which endorsed virtually the entirety of our amicus brief, albeit without specifically citing it. Of course, we'll have much more on this in future, near future uh, episodes.
1: Other big cases still to be decided include a couple of affirmative action cases that we've covered before, one involving Harvard and one involving the University of North Carolina. We have the Biden student loan cases. There are a pair of those. I have We haven't really talked in great detail about that, and there are some standing issues in the case, um, questions about who can... Who can challenge the Biden student loan policies at issue? We've got a case about compelled speech, about someone who doesn't really want to create a web page for a same sex couple. Can that person be forced to do that? Um, several big cases. There's a religious accommodation in the workplace case. There are only 10 cases left to be decided, Andy. And of those seven, of the ten, are reckoned to were reckoned to be among the most salient cases of the term. If you looked at Scotus Blog and our friend Amy Howe, who runs Scotus Blog, and Amy has been on the podcast before as a guest, and I hope we can bring her back a little bit later this season after the Supreme Court is done. But Scotus Blog identified twelve big cases, um, salient cases of the sixty that the court was set to hear, and the court was adding cases over the course of of the year. But of the sixty. Scott's Blog said, oh, there are 12 that we see as particularly high visibility, high salience. The court has decided 50 of those 60, but only five of those 50 were the salient cases. Seven of the remaining 10 are are high profile cases. And that's this week. And that's why I got to get I got to get back from California uh, pretty soon and and back to the East Coast so I can um, pay attention to this stuff but but today yes i'm in sunny sunny california visiting yeah. family
0: and uh of course it's going to air on wednesday you know as you said midnight tuesday early wednesday and given that the court's likely to announce some things on tuesday that's tomorrow for us um you know, you may be tuning in on Wednesday and saying, okay, okay, well, this big thing came down yesterday. I can't wait to hear what they have to say. And, of course, we're taping this before anything comes down. on, Bye. And uh, we'll be back, Andy, though.
1: Andy, I, I can't wait to hear what we have to say. I have no idea what we have to say, but I can't wait. Yes.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 an exciting time. And, look, we're not strictly a Supreme Court podcast by any means. Um, you know, we look at what we like to call the constitutional ecosphere, which goes, uh, you know, everything from uh, Charles Black's musical taste to, uh, you know, to, to the current cases. And, of course, a lot of the current cases we explore in particular because, of course, sometimes because there's public interest, but also because you happen to be an expert on one or more of the issues that implicated by the case, or you might be cited um, in the case, something like that. And these are great opportunities to offer something to our audience that they can't get anywhere else, because you know there is something about being an expert, which means that you can provide a depth of of insight that someone else can't, and so that's one of the things that we lo- that we do is we look to see which cases uh, involve areas that you can add something, and in fact, a recent case did that. Um, case of uh, uh, Samia versus the United States, also known as Samic versus United States. Um, and I've, I'm not certain about the pronunciation, but I think we're going to go with Samia uh, on this one. Very interesting case that implicates the confrontation clause of the Sixth Amendment. Um, so we'll talk about the case, but maybe it's useful uh, to hear what the confrontation clause says. Uh, so you can, when you hear the facts of the case, uh, audience, you can think about it in those terms. So, what is the Sixth Amendment? In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall
1: ha- enjoy the right, dot, 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 to be confronted with the witnesses against him. Goes on to say to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense.
0: And this has been held to be applicable against the states as well as uh, in federal cases. Is that correct?
1: Thanks to our friend, Justice Hugo Black. Um,
0: and we've had episodes about Justice Black
1: and the incorporation doctrine, mm-hmm. just so.
0: This case happens to be federal case. Um, right. Tried in the Southern District of New York. Right. And so the facts of that's why it's, it's Samia versus United States and, and the trial
1: know, obviously it was United States versus Samia.
0: Mm -hmm. But point is, it would be equally applicable to cases in in state court. Exactly. And the facts are complex, but the, one of the basic out, a basic outline here uh, would include the fact, this was kind of a uh, organized crime or mafia type of thing, where a bunch of people were recruited by someone else who became a, a government witness to conduct, a, allegedly, a murder-for-hire of a real estate broker. And the three defendants in question were tried together. Um, and this, that's relevant um, to this case. They're, they're, tri- they're tried jointly in the Southern District. So there was a confession by one of the defendants, not Samia, someone named Stillwell, who, arrested, who confessed after he was arrested. And what he said in the confession was that he was in the van where this real estate broker was killed and that defendant Samia, who's the petitioner here, had shot the real estate broker. Okay.
1: I confess he did it.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> now... The complication here is that the this guy Stilwell that confessed did not intend to testify in his own behalf. And the government obviously wanted to get the confession in. Um, uh, and, and it now it implicated Samia. And but since he's not going to be testifying, um, then there are problems if you if you're the government and you want to use this testimony against samia right because samia under the confrontation clause would have the right to confront stillwell the confessor if he were to testify you might think so um and technically he's not taking the stand and we're going to actually
1: talk about how the confrontation clause applies to someone who technically doesn't take the stand because from one point of view could say he's not the witness at all um, but from another point of view, you could say, well, really, it's, it's his accusation that's, that's very powerful in this case. And we're going to talk about all of that. Right. That's going to, what, what, what um, does the word witness against, um, uh, an accused really mean in the context of the sixth amendment? Are you a witness if your words are being introduced by someone else on the stand against and accused against the defendant, and the answer is going to be in a Mars world. And under court doctrine,
0: it depends. Right. I was getting to that. I mean, my point here, Akil, was that I was saying that if Stilwell testified, yes, uh, then he then Samia could cross-examine him. Of course. But, right. But that's not happening. Okay. Stillwell is not testifying. He doesn't have to testify because of his Fifth right. Amendment right. Can't be forced to. So now you're the own government. Trial at least and this is his trial as as well as Sammy's correct now um so now you're the government and you want to get this confession in but you um but you can't do it um directly cuz Stillwell's not going to not going to testify so what do you do so what the government suggested was that a DEA agent testify and he was going to testify that Stillwell had confessed right Okay, so he's, I suppose, a witness to the Uh, confession. Uh, Well, under any
1: definition, I would say he surely is a witness because he's taking the stand um, under oath and all the rest. And we're going to actually move beyond the facts of this case soon enough, and we'll generate a little shorthand. So I'm going to call the person who actually takes the stand, Stan. Stan. And I'm going to call the defendant, you know, in, in all these hypotheticals, Devin, you know, and I'm going to call the eyewitness, you know, who has some underlying information, but maybe doesn't take the stand. I'm going to call the eyewitness Inez. So Inez is the eyewitness. Stan is the person who takes the stand. And Devin is the defendant in various hypotheticals.
0: Right. But the you can see how it's analogous to this case where, yes. you know, we have someone that did it, two people that weren't did it effectively. Um, One of them shot you know pulled the trigger right. they're, they're, uh, the they're other they're of the world they're the defendants in the case
1: right okay and one of them also happens to be the eyewitness inez and then someone's taking the stand who happens to be in this case and this isn't always true um the person taking the stand happens to be a government operative and that's not always going to be true
0: now one of, the court considered it to be relevant to this case uh to to determine what the DEA, DEA agent actually said. Um, right. be, and in fact, it was agreed before he testified what he would say. The court actually got involved in deciding what he would say before he actually said it. Um, so there have been previous cases that indicated that if he said, remember, the, we're talking about Samia here, as the person that supposedly pulled the trigger and Stillwell as the one that is... Uh, that confessed, singing, but is, but is singing, not testified. Yes. Right. The DEA agent can't say that Stillwell confessed that Samia pulled the trigger. Right. Can't do that. Okay. I confess he did it. <laughs> right. right. He also can't say, according to the court, uh, Stillwell confessed that blank did it. Right? Right. So what did he say? He said, well, Stilwell confessed to a time, this is a quote, when the other person he was with pulled the trigger on that woman in a van that he and Mr. Stilwell was driving. Okay, that's, you know, uh, should be were driving, but he said was driving. Okay. And the court considered this to be a, an important difference. And, of course, that, that raises – now, why do we – how could this possibly be, you know, admissible? Well, the court says it can be admissible because the judge can issue an instruction to the jury telling them something to the effect that they can't, uh, you know, they can't consider this evidence vis-a-vis SAMIA. Against SAMIA, Right. right. This evidence should only be
1: considered. Remember, it's a joint trial. There's one jury. You can come back to that because actually just remember that there's only one jury in this case, multiple defendants. And the judge is going to give an instruction to the jury saying, "What what that FBI agent said, you can use it against Stillwell. You can't actually consider that against any against, for example, SAM yet.
0: And you might say, well, okay, why couldn't then why is it that he can't say the other things that we said he can't say if you give the same limiting instruction. In other words, if you say, you know, Samia did it or whatever, but you can't use it against Samia. And- that's
1: a hard bell to unbring in your head once you've heard that bell. Mm-hmm. So if the confessing defendant, out, of, he's confessing out of court, said, I did it, and so did Samia. And then the judge says, "Oh, you can you can count it against Stillwell, but not Sam. That's going to be a hard belt unring." Okay. And then he said, "I and you know, deleted did it, and, and they're going to just think, well, who would that be? Who would be deleted be? And um, and but here, the FBI agent didn't say Samia, didn't say deleted, said it in a little bit more indirect a uh, fashion. He said the other person, the the other deleted." Person didn't inv- doesn't involve an FBI agent. It's, it's usually just a transcript of what the co-defendant said, and and it just says I and Samia did. Well, that you know, even with limiting instruction, that's not good enough. Saying don't consider that against Samia. If the transcript says I and, and then they you know put in a blank or the word deleted, you know, bracket deleted close bracket. Um, if we are just. Again, a transcript, you know, you're immediately going to say, well, who is that guy? So they tried to fuzz it over just a little bit more, saying we're not introducing the transcript of the confessing co-defendant, the I'm still well, Fellow. We're going to do it more smoothly by having the FBI agent who heard all of this scribe it um, more abstractly. We the limiting instruction, but now your name isn't, um, I mean, your mind isn't immediately drawn. Oh, I heard the word Sam yet. Oh, what's this deleted all about?
0: Right. So instead they say other person. And of course, one could argue that, well, that's what's the difference between that and blank, especially when you already know who the other person is. Um, and from- that's what Justice Kagan, we haven't told them all the facts. That's what Justice Kagan is going to say in dissent.
1: She's going to say, um, but anyway, we. we I, I'm, right. ju- I'm jumping the gun. Yes.
0: Okay. So you might say, okay, what's the legal issue here? So the question is, you know, when is the confrontation clause implicated? So if Stilwell said this, no problem. You can just cross-examine him and either and then the jury can decide for itself whether they believe stillwell or whether they be, or whether they don't believe stillwell but instead you have the dea agent testifying that stillwell said it and so now yeah you can cross examine the dea agent but all you're really cross examining him about is whether he actually heard this right and
1: and let's even take it a step further suppose actually there had been no confession at all i know i'm now beginning to introduce an important wrinkle but but i try to think systematically and this is really important suppose there had been no confession at all and samia knows that stillwell was actually the trigger man he he's still guilty maybe of something but not of something as serious if he's not the trigger man for example if he's not the trigger man you can't get the death penalty under cruel and unusual punishment doctrine. The only people who can get the death penalty are actually people who pulled the trigger, not their accomplices. Okay, So if Samia wanted to actually call Stillwell to the stand under oath and and, and cross-examine him because Stillwell did it, he's not allowed to do that because Stillwell, under current doctrine, can say self-incrimination, you can't force me to um, take the stand and admit I did it under oath.
0: And of course, you know, if you have this situation where someone is essentially accusing you of doing something and you don't have the right to uh, confront them about it because they have a right of uh, against self-incrimination, that's a problem. And the court is saying, well, this can be cured by uh, a limiting instruction on the jury saying, uh, well, yeah, you just heard this, but... You know, you you can't consider it against this defendant, and uh, of course, the obvious thing is, well, if if you're trying to obscure the identity of the defendant by saying words like the other person, then why do you need a limiting instruction saying that you can't use it against him? Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and 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 Andy, but just then t- take a step back because I'm saying even if the government weren't trying to use some evidence and had no confession against the code defendant in a totally different situation I'm saying existing doctrine is troubling and Amar actually has a solution the, um, remember the key to this case is in part a phrase that includes the word witness what who's a witness what does that mean what does that require that word appears in the confrontation clause you're entitled to confront witnesses against yourself if you're an accused person. It occurs in the compulsory process clause. You have a right as a defendant to compel the production of witnesses in your favor. It's also the self incrimination clause of the fifth amendment that no person can be compelled same word to be a witness against himself in a criminal case. Now, um, existing doctrine, basically, especially in a co-defendant situation would say, ah, one co-defendant can't compel the other co-defendant to take the stand. Because that other person would be compelled in a criminal case to be a witness against himself. And, but this is a problem. If actually, um, let's imagine just, it's a, it maybe a slightly far-fetched hypothetical for some people, but let's imagine someone's a murderer, but not a liar because for religious reasons, maybe they pulled the trigger. Maybe they now repent. Maybe they weren't religious before or it wasn't intentional or something like that. They're not going to lie or let's imagine they're going to lie, but they're going to be a bad liar. Um, Ian, you're going to be able to. They, they, you're going to be able to slice and dice them. They did it. You know they did it. You know they pulled the trigger, and you didn't. But you today are not allowed to put them on the stand because they're the co-defendant. And and um, um, now Amar is going to actually have a solution to this. It's going to go back to some of the things we talked about in our episode on compelled self-incrimination. It's going to it's going to be a little complicated, uh, but not not too complicated. But Amar's constitution tries to be systematic, tries to think about how self-incrimination rules connects to confrontation rules connect to compulsory process rules, three different clauses that all use the same word witness. How do they fit together um, into a larger schema of innocence protection and truth seeking? And, and if my reforms were adopted as a package, they'd be much better for innocent defendants. They'd also be better for government trying to actually convict guilty defendants. It would be a win-win because in my world, we introduce
0: more evidence in certain ways, and and that would be a good thing. Now, of course, listeners to this podcast will know that we've spoken about the Fifth Amendment um, before, and we've spoken about uh, notions of whether you can use, you know, fruits of someone's, uh, you know, testimony uh, against them and things like that. And we're going to, you know, rehash a little bit of that, but this is in case you're thinking, oh, I heard all this already. No, this is we're breaking new territory here. The Sixth Amendment is not the same as the Fifth Amendment, but they are, of course, related, and and clearly the Fifth Amendment is implicated in this case because of the uh, self-incrimination uh, issues are are right at the forefront. But they're not the only issues.
1: Self-incrimination, even in this case, are at the forefront because. Samia will not even though Stillwell's words have been admitted and he's implicating someone although not Samia by name and there's a limiting instruction but Samia is not allowed in this case to force Stillwell to take the stand because of the 5th amendment so so we're having to think about otherwise there would be a kind of possibility of confronting accusations against you. Okay. The FBI agent has testified, but if you really think that actually this, this alleged confession, which is really implicating you, you're Samia. If you think it's all bogus. Except for the Fifth Amendment self-incrimination, you'd be able to say, let's hear it directly from, from Stilwell and let me actually have uh, and my lawyer have at him and, and try to slice and dice him on the stand. But you're not allowed to force him to take the stand. So, yes, in the background of this case, you can't understand this case without understanding actually um, the two other clauses. This is about confrontation. OK, but ordinarily you could say. Ah, well. Still, well. If he, if you don't, I mean, excuse me, Samia. If you don't like this, you can compel the production of witnesses in your favor. You, know, you can compel Stillwell to take the stand himself and ask him questions and um, and and slice and dice him. But you're you're not allowed to use your ordinary confrontation. I think your ordinary compulsory process right here because of the self-incrimin because of his self-incrimination rights. So that's why you have to understand all three of these together. Truthfully, I'm not sure any of the justices in this case, you know, put them all together. And and I have a way of putting them all together that would be, I think, better for the system as a whole.
0: Yeah. And I think that you know we talk about the and when people talk about this case, they talk about uh the confrontation clause. But as you just mentioned the clause that immediately follows that in the Sixth Amendment says that you have a right, the accused shall enjoy the right to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor. So he could so and and I think that uh, of course this is interesting because it says witnesses, you know, in his favor. Um and he, and it also talks about witnesses against him, right? So you can confront witnesses against you and you can compel testimony in your favor but of course we don't necessarily think that that means what it sounds like it means entirely right um because in my view you should be able to confront witnesses in your favor, um, to, to blow, um, blend the two together. So, um, and to compel should, a witness against you. That's what you're talking about. Someone says something, you know, if it's not in the in the context of self-incrimination, you can compel their testimony so that you can grill them about it. Right, so I think, you know, Andy, you and I
1: talked about this offline. Um, witnesses shouldn't be understood as in your favor or against you. They're witnesses for the truth, yes. okay? And some are called by the government that we can we can treat the words as if that's what a witness against accused means called by the government you can call them that's witnesses in your favor but either way they're supposed to tell the truth and especially if you're a defendant you should be allowed to impeach your own the veracity of your own witness you you're the one who calls them you didn't pick them in the sense that you know they're the ones who have the information the world picked them you're just sort of stuck they're they're the person and not vouching for them in every way, but they have information, and maybe you want them to actually accuse you, so you can actually demolish the accusation. So you should be allowed to confront and challenge and impeach and slice and dice even someone you called um, in in certain situations.
0: And I really think that it's it's very difficult to to make an argument that the phrase "witnesses against you" in the in the uh, confrontation clause means only witnesses that are called by the opposition. So for example, when I used to um be involved with cases as an expert witness, um you know, one side or the other might call me or the court could appoint me for example. Um but uh if I were in any case, I was always when if I was going to be called by let's say the, you know, the the plaintiff. I mean this is civil litigation, but still it's the same general idea. Um, and you would always get asked, like, how many cases have you testified for the prosecution? How many cases have you testified? You know, and I would say I'm a witness for the truth. You know, yes. and, and and of course, even though I'm a witness for the truth, the other side has the right to cross-examine me. I'm not right. against them, but right. I'm an expert. As an expert, right. I'm supposed to be not for one side or the other. And nevertheless, yeah. they still have the right to cross-examine me. So it really is not... Uh, I think this—it's an unfortunate word, really. But well, in, in a Mars world,
1: defendants especially should have, be allowed to have a very vigorous right to question the veracity of someone, even if they call them to the stand. They, I mean, in legal parlance to impeach their own witness if that serves the cause of the truth. It's, I think, a mistake to think that each party is necessarily vouching for each and everything that a witness that they call to the stand might say.
0: You know, it's an adversarial proceeding, but that doesn't mean that witnesses are adversarial, necessarily.
1: What a defendant will ask the judge to do is permission to treat the witness as a hostile witness, Your Honor. And that means you you have more leeway and and that you should be allowed to do that even if it's a witness that you, you called to the stand. Mm-hmm. You get permission
0: to treat them as a hostile witness. So you can ask like leading questions and things like that in that case. Exactly so. Mm-hmm. Okay, and by the way, I never
1: took evidence in law school, but I've watched lots of Law and Order episodes.
0: <laughs> okay, that's like uh, you know, I used to get on my uh, my my kids for getting their news from the from the Daily Show or something like that with Jon Stewart when he was uh, hosting it. Andy, this is a good moment just to remind
1: our audience about a theme. It's probably come up in at least five previous episodes that I distinguish between legal rules that apply to people in, for want of a better expression, the real world, two people agreeing to do something in the real world. We're going to, we're going to, and we call that a contract. We're going to, we're going to team up in, in, in some way. I'm going to buy something from you or sell something to you or two people who, one of whom harms the other in the real world by committing a tort or a crime. Okay. So people interact in the real world and, and we need law To facilitate, to to regulate those interactions, to facilitate cooperation and to prevent oppression and, and harm. Okay, but once we have rules of contract, of tort, of criminal law, once we have rules of property, what's yours and what's mine and then contract, how do I take something that's mine and transfer it? To you. What can't you do to me? You can't take away my property. That not, might be a tort. That not, can't trespass upon. It might be a crime if you do it with a certain kind of evil intent. Once we have rules of property, contract, tort, criminal law, we're going to need a legal system. And then we're going to need laws and rules regulating that legal system. I call that the law of law. And, and law world is different than the real world. Maybe law world is only 2% of the real world, but we're going to need rules for that. And things like rules of evidence and procedure, rules of testimony, of cross examination and direct examination and, you know, leading and what sorts of things you can ask and not asking, leading the witness or not. This is the law of law that we're talking about here. And, and that's about confrontation and compulsory process. And self-incrimination. Oh, and we've been also talking about the role of the jury, jury trials, and limiting instructions.
0: This is in you know, now we're in the the heartland of law world. And actually, it matters um, where these things come from. So, for example, you could you could have someone that comes from the the private world, right? Um, talking about something that happened in the private world, testifying to that as a witness. Sure. And the rules there are different. Than they are for something that that initiated in the law world. So in, yes. other, in other words, yes. if I ask you, you're under, you know, you're in custody, and I ask you a question. So that's that questioning, and and your and whether or not your answer can be admitted is subject to different rules than if that question took place from just, you know, you and I having a conversation here or something like that.
1: So let me let me actually and now here we're moving beyond Stillwell and Samia and and the rest the DEA agent. Now we're using hypotheticals and and just to remind everyone, Inez is an eyewitness of a certain sort. I, Inez. And Devin is the ultimate defendant in the case and Stan is the person who takes the stand. Okay. So let's imagine one situation. So Stan takes the stand, says Inez says that she saw Devin walking back and forth in front of the storefront window. Okay. Now in one situation, Stan here, just a friend of Inez's, a private person. And Inez says, you know, maybe they all know each other. Inez says, you know, Devin was acting kind of weird the other day. I saw him pacing back back and forth in front of the Apple store or whatever. Okay. Um, So that's just, that's just the real world. Stan is taking the stand to uh, report what Inez, the eyewitness, actually eyewitnessed. And maybe, No crime has yet occurred at all when Devin was pacing back and forth in front of the Apple store. Now, later on, the Apple store, you see there's a robbery and the government wants to introduce some information because this is very suspicious. Maybe Devin was, as we would say, casing the joint. Okay, But that's, in in my view, when Stan takes the stand and says, well, Inez told me this, that might be a hearsay. Issue of a certain sort um, under rules of evidence, which we'll talk about, because Inez's utterance are being introduced in a criminal case for the truth of the matter asserted. Inez isn't actually taking the stand, but Stan is reporting Inez's words as truthful. Oh, Inez saw Devon, you know, pacing back and forth. But yes. to repeat, there may have been no crime. Inez is not testifying.
0: A, Just to be clear, Inez is not testifying, and Inez is, is testifying. not
1: testifying. Okay. So I say in that world, the confrontation clause isn't even triggered. Inez is not the witness. She's not under oath. She's not testifying. She's not in the courthouse. She's not talking to a government agent. She, the crime hasn't even occurred. She's just, this is just one person talking to a private person talking to another private person about a third private person. I might distinguish that from Inez telling that same story to Stan when Stan is now not a friend or an acquaintance in the private world, but a government official trying to, to take uh, Inez's story down, the DEA agent, for example, in this case. And now oh, that's 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 different. And and if Stan takes the stand, I'm going to say that's a little bit uh, uh, more like a deposition, like an affidavit, and those things are law world things, words like deposition and affidavit. And they're actually, in that situation, Inez functionally actually is a witness that Devin has a right to confront directly, and the government shouldn't be able to deny Devin that by filtering it through Stan, who in in this hypothetical is a DEA agent, a police officer, a court transcriptionist, FBI agent, something like that, a police officer at, okay. at the station house.
0: Well, I think we need to back up for a second and explain to our audience the different concepts that are involved here. So first of all, you know, you have Stan saying that Inez told him something. Right. Okay, so some people might say, oh, that's hearsay. Yes, Okay, it is. And, and now, fine. Okay, now, as we know anybody that watches a lot of Law & Order knows that hearsay, as a general proposition, is not admissible as evidence, but there are many exceptions, um, and and it might be admissible under one of the exceptions. Now, for the purposes of this case that we're talking about here, or this general topic, the question is, does the fact that it's hearsay, whether, whether or not there's an exception, forget about that for a second, does the fact that it's hearsay mean that the confrontation clause is being violated because right. it's hearsay and you don't have, you know, you can't confront. So if I say, you know, you said this to me, if I say that on the stand, well, if you can't, you can't test, you can't cross examine me about the truth of what you said. All I can really, all I really know is that you said it. Okay. Right. Now I don't know whether it's true, and if you can't if you can't confront the person that you know that said it in the first place, then that might be th- thought of as a violation of the confrontation clause. So, so now you have this conf- the, people sort of conflating hearsay and the confrontation clause, and you the, can see yes. how that might happen. So, but you say no, they're not the same. So how are they different? So let me now take a step back even more and tell you what the confrontation
1: clause is and isn't and what it's about and what would be an evasion of it and why we need uh, rules to enforce its letter and its spirit. Let's start with the core idea. Core idea is if Inez took the stand at trial and an oath was administered to Inez and Inez testified under oath. And the judge hears what Inez says, um, and the jury hears what Inez says, the defendant's actually in the courtroom, but we don't allow the defendant to actually ask tough questions of Inez. That would be an obvious and core violation of the confrontation clause. You get to not only like see the witness you know, face-to-face, but ask them questions. Okay, it's a, it's about, in effect, cross examining the witness against you. That's easy and obvious. The, and what's the purpose? Because maybe Inez is lying. Maybe Inez is misremembering or only selectively remembering. And we believe that confrontation is a is a way. And this is actually a, an expression of beating out the truth. And you know, coming up. Uh, so so that's the basic theory of the adversarial adjudicative system in the Anglo-American common law world about the courtroom, the law of law, okay? Um, law world. So once you understand that's the easy and core case, now we you can understand what I was trying to say just a little bit before about depositions and affidavits, okay? So suppose in order to evade all of that, You know, uh, prevent Devin, the defendant, from using his lawyer, presumably, to really ask hard questions of Inez. You know, how's your eyesight? You know, how's your hearing? You know, do you have a bias here, you know, in a certain way? Um, But what about this? You know, you only told us this part of the story, but what about this other part that puts it in a different context? You know, isn't it true that you're a well-known liar? <laughs> and, and and here's all sorts of evidence of that, um, or, or all sorts of questions about your, your past lies. Okay, that's what confrontation is all about. Now, because Inez actually is going to have all these problems when she takes the stand, the government might think, ah, we're going to be very clever. We're going to evade all of that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have Inez give an affidavit or a deposition and we're going to exclude Devin. She's going to go into a room under oath with a stenographer. We're going to make a videotape of the whole thing. We we the government are going to ask her all sorts of questions, elicit her story just as we would under oath on um at trial, but we're just going to videotape the whole thing and it's under oath and then but but we're going to exclude Devin from the whole thing and then we're very cleverly going to introduce that at trial or we're going to do it a slightly different way we're going to have her tell stan the government dea agent or something her whole story and he's just going to recount well i said this and then she's that and then she said the other thing oh and they have all these elaborate notes here that i took i took a total perfect transcript and and now you're going to say to devon Oh, Inez didn't take the stand. The only person who took the stand is Stan. You can ask Stan all the questions you want. But but, but what you really want is to actually undermine Inez's credibility. And you can't do that. Or the government is trying to prevent you from doing that by putting Stan on the stand. That's why... Amar believes, and so does the Supreme Court, all nine justices now. Justice led, in fact, by Justice Thomas, who writes the majority opinion in this case. He was the first one to really highlight the Confrontation Clause is designed to prevent trial by affidavit, trial by deposition, in which the government is structuring things so as to prevent the defendant from, From being able to eyeball to eyeball, face to face, and with with direct questions, go after the underlying eyewitness. You asked me, I gave you half of the answer, Mm -hmm. which is, okay, that's what the confrontation clause is about. And you said, oh, but Akil, you think that's different than the hearsay rule. Just so. Because in another kind of situation where Inez just tells her friend, Stan, about what their mutual friend Devin was doing and acting weirdly, that might trigger hearsay rules if um, Stan testifies to what out-of-court declarant Inez actually said and didn't say. But that's totally different. Three private people, that has nothing to do with affidavits. Nothing to do with depositions. It's not an evasion directly of the Confrontation Clause rules about um, how we structure courtroom interactions. And that's Thomas's big idea. And so now, Andy, I apologize in advance to our audience, but I'm once again going to sort of say, oh, here's a Keel's angle on all of this. But I actually am, you know, this is a Marcus Constitution and I am implicated in all of this. There was a time. Andy, before Clarence Thomas and Akil Amar came along, and Justice Antonin Scalia is going to play a role in this story, as is Stephen Breyer, there was a time where the court doctrine conflated the hearsay rules with the Confrontation Clause. I told you a little bit about the Confrontation Clause, let me just say a little bit more about hearsay. Under hearsay, a hearsay witness is different i think from the confrontation clause witness but but hearsay is triggered when an utterance is introduced by an out of court declarant other than the defendant actually for being very strict for the truth of the matter asserted okay so it's classic hearsay when stan who is a private person who's a friend of I- Inez's repeats what Inez told Stan because Inez's utterance is being introduced, let's imagine for the truth of the matter asserted and she's not in court. That is classic hearsay. Well, I didn't see it, but so-and-so told me that, you know, that they saw it. That's hearsay. Hearsay is subject to all sorts of exceptions. It is admissible under certain circumstances. When the courts conflated that before Thomas and Keel came along, with the Confrontation Clause, they had actually, in effect, too broad a definition of witness. So they were treating Inez as if she were a witness, even outside the situations of depositions and affidavits. And because, actually, you're going to need exceptions to the hearsay rule, we create um, all sorts of They, bet court basically, well, there's confrontation, but we can make exceptions. But the Confrontation Clause doesn't say anything like we can make exceptions. It has no ifs, ands, or buts. So Thomas comes along, and this he did this in the very first week of, or the, of the first sitting uh, that he was on the court. He actually wrote an opinion that suggested we should have a narrower definition of witness for Confrontation Clause purposes. And it should be ab- absolute. If you really are a confrontation clause witness, then there's an absolute right of confrontation. But the idea of an out-of-court declarant whose utterance is introduced for the truth of the matter asserted that's a different thing. That's the hearsay rule, and there are exceptions to the hearsay rule. Can
0: you give me an example of where the confrontation clause is is implicated uh, and hearsay isn't, and vice versa?
1: Okay. Vice versa is the easiest of all. Stan says... That Inez reported that Devin was um, walking up and down before uh, in front of the Apple Store, the, the glass front of the of the
0: Apple Store. Okay, so that's hearsay. Um, that's hearsay. It so might be admissible under
1: an exception to. There might be various exceptions to the hearsay rule. Maybe that was, you know, Inez's dying declaration as she was dying. She just wanted to get this off her chest or something. And the idea is people don't die on their deathbed. You know, there are, there are co-conspirator exceptions to the hearsay rule. There are excited utterance exceptions. There are lots of exceptions, but Thomas says, the, and I agree with him, the confrontation clause is not implicated here because, one, Inez is never taking the stand, and this isn't a situation where the government has manipulated the thing by a kind of affidavit or deposition.
0: So, so in that case, then, let's say that, that it got admitted under an, an exception to hearsay, like it was a dying declaration, let's say. And you say, well, sure, that's a perfectly legitimate exception to the hearsay rule, um, but um, because it's hearsay, that means, in this false reasoning, that the confrontation clause is implicated. And because I didn't have the right to cross-examine Inez, because she's dead, this testimony needs to be excluded. And you say, no, it should be included because the conf- confrontation clause is not implicated here. Um, yes. And yes, it's hearsay, but it's an, you know, an exception to hearsay. So it should be admitted and you can't say, no, it has to be kept out because of the confrontation clause. Is that right? right? Yes. Okay. Um, whereas the court would have said at one time, perhaps, so otherwise...
1: Either they would have excluded it and that's wrong, or they would have done a balancing analysis and said it's okay. But the problem is they shouldn't do a balancing analysis where the confrontation clause is actually triggered, where there's an affidavit or something like that. They say, well, we think the affidavit is actually pretty reliable or something like that. So we're going to admit it. Yes, they did an affidavit and they got Inez to say all these things and they excluded Devin and now she's dead. OK, and so, gee, but under you know, rules of, of hearsay, you know, she's dead. So we're going to that was her dying declaration or something doesn't matter, even if it meets the hearsay rule, that confrontation clause is categorical. Um, so when you mush them together, either you're going to start balancing away the confrontation, the core confrontation clause, right, when you shouldn't. Or you're going to be excluding categorically all sorts of stuff that makes no sense to categorically exclude because you have too broad a definition of witness. Okay. now what about the other way? Well, here's a case where the confrontation clause applies and and hearsay has nothing to do with the, the matter. Close circuit testimony. It's not hearsay at all. You've got a witness, but... We don't allow the witness is a child. And so we don't want the defendant eyeballing the child face to face. There's nothing hearsay ish about that. The child is actually testifying to what the child actually directly saw. But you could say, well, there's no, you're, you're depriving the defendant of a right to confront eyeball to eyeball. Or there have been cases a- about that. Just any situation where someone takes the stand. And starts testifying against the defendant. And if we cut off, if we didn't let the defendant ask questions of that person taking the stand, stand, that would be a confrontation clause issue, core confrontation clause violation. Has nothing to do with hearsay, right?
0: So the point is that, that hearsay. Mm-hmm. So a couple of points that you made here: first of all, we've now established that hearsay and the confrontation clause are not the same thing. We've also established that there are exceptions to hearsay or at least we we know that. Um, but there aren't uh, certainly as readily um, exceptions to the confrontation clause because it's phrased in absolute language. and the, yes, fact that, that's that, the key. and the fact yeah, that the, per- that you're giving a narrow interpretation to the confrontation clause. In other words, you're not saying it's so broad that includes every uh, everything that's hearsay. Um, that makes it more tolerable to have a stricter interpretation of this clause.
1: Just so. And it may very well be that because they are unenumerated rights and there's the spirit of the clause as well as the letter, we could read it more expansively beyond the core. But then, since we understand it's beyond the core, it doesn't necessarily need to be categorical. But the core is categorical, and that means it's going to be narrower and limited. So, before Thomas took the bench, the court was collapsing these things, it was treating the confrontation clause as if it were just a constitutional codification of the hearsay rules with all these exceptions. It was balancing away a confrontation, even in core land, even in people taking the stand, like the circuit television situation um, or a situation in which someone takes the stand and somehow you don't let the defendant and the defendant's lawyer properly cross-examine them. Okay, so enter Thomas. I think this was the first week he was on the court. Um, he heard a case, and he's a textualist of a certain sort, and I think he was actually picking up on something in the, uh, the, the brief of the United States. And so he tosses out a, a different conceptualization, saying maybe we actually need a narrower definition of witness. It should be about affidavits and depositions. Enter Akil. Akil reads this and say, wow. That's a really kind of interesting and nifty idea. And writes some stuff about this. Citing Justice Thomas becomes an article, Sixth Amendment First Principles, an article that talks about all sorts of things in the Sixth Amendment. Compulsory pros- confrontation, yes, but compulsory process, yes. Jury trial, speedy trial, public trial, trial from the district as well as the the state as a whole. So kind of venue and vicinage issues. We've talked about some of these in in, in past episodes. Sixth Amendment's about a lot of things, but one of them is confrontation. And so there's a little five page discussion in this piece about confrontation, in which I offered a narrower definition, and I built on Justice Thomas. And I actually connected my narrower definition to how I think about the word witnessing in the compulsory process clause and how I think about the word witnessing in the self-incrimination clause. I'm going to come back to that in just a second, self-incrimination clause. How I think about the word witnessing in the treason clause, because I try to be systematic and intertextual. The word doesn't always have to mean the same thing in every situation. It probably can't. But at least when you think about one, think about the other. So I write this up. And um, another scholar is beginning to think along the same wavelength, a slightly different idea. His name is Professor Richard Friedman. He's a very distinguished evidence law professor, among other things, at the University of Michigan. So anyway, Thomas actually launches the thing, building on a U.S. government brief. I pick up on this and start writing about it. Richard Friedman writes about it. And eventually, this is really interesting and astonishing, some of the other justices begin to pick up on it. Um, Justice Breyer who doesn't always vote with Justice Thomas, picks up on this and cites me in a concurrence. And then, amazingly enough, Justice Scalia picks up on this, writes an opinion for the court in a case called Crawford, in which he basically repudiates the earlier cases, comes up with um, this new way of thinking about the Confrontation Clause, citing, of course, Justice Thomas, who saw it first, Citing Justice Breyer, who suggested hmm, this might be, you know, a different way of thinking about the whole thing. He is also on board. That's three justices. Thomas, Breyer, Scalia, but that's short of a minion, we might say. <laughs> OK, you need five, not three. And interestingly, citing these academics, Friedman and Amar, and overturning cases in textual, originalist fashion, overturning cases in the name of Constitutional first principles. And he does a a lot of additional historical background, um, historical digging, suggesting, yes, actually, the deep background is to prevent trials by deposition, trials by affidavit. And now you see this is consistent with my view that precedent should yield to text and history, that we need to take test history seriously, that we need to think about things um, holistically And uh, later cases actually also continue to cite Akhil from time to time on this issue. So I've been cited, I think, about four dozen times by the Supreme Court, but but three or four have been in this area and by different justices, by Thomas, I think, um, definitely by Justice Kennedy, by Justice Scalia, by Justice Breyer. So this is how it, it intersects with Amar World, the Crawford Revolution. This is revolutionizing how we think about the confrontation clause and actually Andy I think speaking of hearsay we ha- we have a scholar who actually quotes Scalia on the significance of the Crawford case in Scalia's own ideas about his contributions to Supreme Court precedent and case law
0: and jurisprudence. Earlier just to be clear for the audience you said well he only has three justices and and a more but in fact Crawford is unanimous. Um in result, right. In result, um, right. Not right. in outcome. I think Justice Chief Justice Rehnquist has some real skepticism about certain things. Right. Rehnquist files an opinion, uh, concurring in the judgment, and O'Connor joins. But uh, the rest of them join the Scalia's opinion on that. Right. So, um, but before Crawford, what I'm saying is there weren't ever five right. justices. Right. Just I just wanted to be
1: clear on on that. Uh, right. right. Before Crawford, there was Thomas you know, and Breyer in these concurrences. Um, and this was contrary to what the court had said. Because when Thomas first floats this, actually, Rehnquist he, um, writes very dismissively, adds uh, too much water on the bridge too late in the day to actually, you know, rethink first principles. And in the end, the court rethinks first principles, you see. This is why I'm you know, Pushing back when pre and in Dobbs says, oh, we don't do that. Yes, we do do that. Often we do do that. We rethink precedents if they're, we come to believe they're inconsistent with the best understanding of the Constitution's text and history. But Josh Blackman, talking about the S- Samia case, had a firsthand report of what Scalia said about
0: Crawford. So Josh Blackman says on the uh, blog, The Volokh Conspiracy, he says, When I was a 2L, I attended an event on Justice Scalia's, Scalia's book, Making Your Case. During the Q&A session, someone asked Justice Scalia what opinion he was most proud of. Without any hesitation, he said Crawford versus Washington, 2004. This landmark decision applied an originalist framework to the confrontation clause. Prior to that, to that Crawford, Ohio versus Roberts from 1980 imposed a reliability standard to determine whether out-of-court testimony could be introduced. But in Crawford, Justice Scalia turned back the clock to the deep historical roots of the right to confrontation,
1: and that reliability standard was in effect the balancing test under hearsay rules. So this is because hearsay got smushed together with confrontation. And they're actually slightly different things. And before Thomas came along and before Crawford, the two were were conflated and Crawford decoupled them. And it was a textualist opinion because uh, the grammar says is absolute. And in an ordinary language sense, You see, Inez isn't really the witness in all sorts of situations. Yes, she's an eyewitness, but she never testified under oath. The jury never saw her. The government never directly um, interacted with her. She may not even know that she's accusing anyone of anything criminal. The crime may not have even happened yet if Devin was merely pacing back and forth. Um, May not have even yet risen to the level of an, an attempt. So, Crawford is a really interesting example, and Scalia recognizes this of originalism, text, which is a narrow idea of witness and is absolute, and history. It's all about trial by affidavit, trial by deposition, all that trumping the precedents that had this different view, that had a balancing test a la the hearsay rule. So that's a really interesting, and I got implicated in all this because I'm part of that originalist revolution, and Justice Thomas, by the way, saw it first. Justice Scalia gets credit for the Crawford Revolution, but this was Justice Thomas's idea first and foremost, and in the later cases, trying to cash out Crawford Actually, Justice Scalia had a slightly different view in many of these cases. I'm not going to go into all the details. And Justice Thomas, I almost always, there were about eight or nine post-Crawford cases, I almost always was on uh, with Justice Thomas's point of view, which was actually a little bit narrow. Justice Scalia, just as an aside, said, well, if Inez was actually accusing Devin of something, she should be treated as a witness within the meaning of the confrontation clause. They say, no, she's still a private person talking to another private person, even if her remarks were accusatory in nature. Witness is actually more of a law word. It's not about eyewitnesses in the real world. It's about witnesses in the law world who either testify on the stand or are um, interact with the government. With structures, their their words in something like an affidavit or a deposition to evade the the rules about testimony on the stand.
0: And also, I think that you also rely on other as another part of the Sixth Amendment to help you out here, because some might say, "Well, yeah, but confrontation, but you you want to be able to confront the the uh, your accuser." So how can hearsay testimony be uh, admissible given that, you know, someone is therefore sort of testifying to the truth of of it indirectly by, by quoting it. And what you say, I think at times as well, yes, but you have compulsory process. You, you can subpoena um, the original, you could subpoena Inez um, in this case, or in many cases, and then you can put her on the stand and say, well, what about this? What about that? And so effectively you're cross-examining her. Hey, 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 you can
1: have a narrow definition of witness under the com- uh, confrontation clause in many circumstances. You can say, well, you know, um, Stan is a private person, and he's testifying about what Inez says about Devin, you know, uh, casing the joint. And, and I'm saying confrontation clause isn't implicated, too bad. And if it meets a hearsay exception, then too bad for Devin, and, and the confrontation clause isn't violated here. But here's the reason this is okay in general, if I have a narrow definition of confrontation clause. Because, yes, Devin can subpoena Inez under the compulsory process clause. And in a Mars world, Devin, you know, should be allowed to actually treat Inez as a hostile witness and, and ask tough questions and all the rest. So, and I, I I'm, so if we have a narrow definition of confrontation in many situations that can be cured by a broad understanding of compulsory process. And remember the same word witness here. In the Samia case, though, mm-hmm. oh, that can't happen, Andy. And can, and have you now figured out why that can't happen, Bite?
0: Well, of course, because uh, you can't subpoena Stillwell um, because of the Fifth Amendment, because of his rights against uh, self-incrimination.
1: Now, which also uses the word witness, you see. Okay, but now, oh, here's where Amar, because Amar tries to think systematically, oh, Amar has an answer to that. And now we're going to figure out how we actually cash it out. But Amar would want the def- uh, one defendant to be able to actually compel uh, the production of a witness, the other co-defendant, and not let that person's Fifth Amendment rights trump, in effect, my Sixth Amendment rights. Now, how can you re- reconcile all of this? Only, in the same word witness here, in Amar's world, Here's what you do. Now, explaining how we um, implement that is going to be a little tricky, but um, by the end of this discussion, the audience will will get it. In a nutshell, it involves two juries hearing uh, the same case in a certain clever way, and this has been done before. But in a Mars world, Ah, Samia should be allowed to put Stillwell on the stand and have at him uh, in all sorts of ways. And Stillwell should not be allowed to invoke the Fifth Amendment because as long as Stillwell's words are never um, introduced against Stillwell and the jury doesn't hear those words, Stillwell will not have been made a witness against himself in his criminal case mm-hmm. as long as the jury doesn't hear all of that. Okay, now how you actually, again, implement that, I'm going to tell you in just a bit. Why does doctrine not allow that? And by the way, if the government wanted to put Stillwell on the stand in a certain situation, it could easily do it by just not prosecuting Stillwell and giving him total immunity. And then actually the government can get him to, to testify against Samia. The government can do that. Oh, but Samia is not given comparable ability to compel. The government can compel Stillwell's testimony. He says, oh, I take the fifth. They said, OK, we give you immunity. And and there you have it. And, and now you have to testify. But we don't let Samia do that. Now we don't let Samia do that in part because we don't want to give every defendant the ability to give their co-defendants or their partners in crime what's called an immunity bath. But in a Mars world, all the government has to do to force someone to sing, let's say let's imagine out of court, in a deposition, in an affidavit, you know in the police station, you know, You have to tell us the truth and say, I don't want to say, Okay, you're immunized. But the immunity is merely your words won't be read against you at your trial. But any leads that we get from them, that's fair game. Okay, now, if you have that narrow idea of what it means to be a witness against yourself in under the Fifth Amendment, that as long as your words are not introduced, you never will have been made in in your court uh, in your trial. You never will admit, have been made a witness against yourself in a criminal case as long as your words aren't introduced but fruits are fair game. Oh, well, then defendants um, could be allowed to, to force other people to testify against themselves. And as long as their words are not introduced against them, the the person taking the stand in their own criminal case, then nothing will have been violated now how do you do that as a practical matter if you had two juries you have the same case multiple defendants same witnesses and all the rest but if Stillwell wants to put Samia on the stand Sammy doesn't want that but we just exclude Samia's jury from uh, that part of it and and they never hear that Sammy can put Stillwell on the stand we exclude Stillwell's jury and the government is actually the wiser for this because it can use all the fruits that a flow from this compelled testimony, because that's not forcing someone to be a witness against themselves. If we use fruits, fruits are different than witnessing. I know that this is quite technical. This is, you know, law can be that. But he, taking a step back, Andy, here's what we've done for the audience. We've connected the confrontation clause, which talks about witnessing, with the compulsory process clause that talks about witnessing in a criminal case with the self-incrimination clause which is about witnessing and we've connected all these together and we've done so in a truth seeking way and in some ways i'm saying defendants should have broader rights than they have now to put people on the stand to go after their own witnesses by treating them as hostile witnesses and andy let me mention one other constitutional clause here uses the word witness. The treason clause of Article 3 says you can't be convicted of treason unless they're two witnesses. Now, we would never count it as two witnesses if one person takes the stand and says, well, I saw him did it. do it, oh, and someone else told me, you know, I, I stand, saw Devin commit treason, oh, and Inez told me the same thing. You know, we wouldn't treat Inez as a second witness if she never testified under oath at trial and and so on. So I'm trying to see if I can achieve, yes, a textual coherence of a certain sort, but also a functional and structural coherence. How all these things need to fit together into a system. This is the law of law system. And in my world, we have overread the word witness in the self-incrimination clause to by allowing fruits to be covered, and they shouldn't, just as we overread the word witness prior to the Crawford Revolution and Justice Thomas in the confrontation clause, and that created all sorts of difficulties, you see. Um, so now, Andy, maybe we should just say a little bit more about Justice Kagan's and Justice Katenji Brown-Jackson's dissent and what the majority opinion actually says, now that you we, we've talked a little bit about a different way of thinking about the case.
0: Yeah, I mean, just in terms of getting, getting back to this case in particular, a lot of it turns on the question of the jury instructions. Um, and so I think the court, and, and what Justice Kagan and Justice Jackson say, is that the court is kind of missing the point that that you're starting off with a confrontation clause violation here, you know that that it, and then you're you're they're trying to make it fit into the you know the square peg into this round round hole um, by saying well you know this kind of and that's why you get into these splitting hairs kinds of things it's the this is the kind of trouble the court gets into when it's trying to you know, fit things into court, into clauses that actually are are categorical. Well,
1: here, I think here's what Justice Thomas is saying. Yeah, this person, the underlying eyewitness, who in this case is Stillwell, they are a witness because the government, in effect, has procured a deposition or an affidavit from them. So they actually really are a witness. So he's he's true to and his earlier themes, and I agree with him about that. He says, oh, but it's not really a witness against Samia if the court issues this limiting instruction. Oh, pay no attention to what the DE agent says, at least as against Samia. And the counter-argument is the jury isn't easily going to be able to, to do that psychologically. If, for example, the DE agent had actually mentioned Samia by name, and the judge had, had said, don't apply that again, don't pay no attention to that against Samia, there's actually a case, a case called Bruton, in which the court said, no, we, you can't allow that. That was actually, it wasn't a DEA agent, it was just the transcript, the affidavit of the deposition of a confession that one of the co-defendants had made, and he says, I did it, and so did uh, the co-defendant. And and the court gave a limiting instruction. Oh, you can apply that against the confessor, um, the out-of-court confessor, but not against the co-defendant. And the court said, as a practical matter, that limiting instruction isn't going to be very effective. And what Justice Kagan says is the same thing is true if you introduce the out-of-court confession, the deposition, and just put the word deleted or blank in. The jury's not going to be and give a limiting instruction that's not going to be any good and here yes you filtered it through the DEA agent but you and you have the limiting instruction but that's really not going to be very effective well, um, So so even even if she, even if Thomas is right that from a strict narrow point of view this is not a witness against Samia because of the limiting instruction. As a practical matter, I think the spirit of the clause, the innocence protection elements of the clause are undermined because Samia can't put Stillwell on the stand and go after him and beat the truth out of him. Cause Stillwell, yes, I confess, Samia did it and he can't do that because of the self incrimination rights of the code defendant even though he's got compulsory process rights of his own someone's 5th amendment self-incrimination rights are trumping someone else's 6th amendment compulsory process rights and amar's world will solve the whole thing by narrowing the 5th amendment self-incrimination just as we narrowed narrowed the compulsory process clause and we don't have to have separate tra- the thing that's um, is worrying the court is gee If limiting instructions don't work, you're going to have to have two separate trials. And there's just going to be a huge overlap of of evidence. It's very inefficient. You're going to have to trial against one person And and the confession can be introduced against him and and a totally different trial against the other defendant, against Samia, where you you don't allow the DEA agent at all. Okay, and and that's just going to be rather than limiting instruction, you just don't um, allow it at all. But you need a whole separate trial. And given that 99 percent of the evidence against one is valid against the other, all the other physical evidence of witnesses, two trials is going to be really inefficient. Oh, I'm saying you don't need two trials. And Justice. I'm not sure Justice Kagan or Justice Katenji Brown-Jackson said this in their dissents. You don't need two trials. Limiting instructions is, is too small. Two trials is just like too inefficient. The just right Goldilocks solution is one trial, two juries. One to hear the evidence against Stilwell, including his confession. The other to hear the evidence against Samia. Excluding that because he's not being allowed to go after Sealwell. Oh, and it gets even better because in a Mars world, in that in this two jury situation. Even if there weren't a confession from either of the defendants, each one could put the other on the stand, and we, we exclude one jury, we allow the other jury to, to hear it, and neither is giving an immunity bath to the other because the only thing we exclude are the words, not any of the fruits. The government would actually be the wiser if it could
0: force stories from each side. This would be great. You know, I think that the the two juries solution is a, is in a sweet spot because, you know, as you said, the um, having to severent several trials all the time uh, puts a lot of weight on the justice system. Plus it, in some cases it can deprive the jury of context, which is, which is helpful in in producing a just result. Um, So uh, here the burden is relatively small. It doesn't come up that often. And you know, it's just another jury and you typically you have a big jury pool for a big case like this. Um, So you're just taking more jurors from the pool. Um, so it's not like you have to have two pools, necessarily. Now, I will say, though, that, you know, we were talking about Justice Kagan's dissent. And, in fact, Justice Jackson also writes a dissent. Um, she, uh, she joins Justice Kagan's, but then she she adds her own. And she's a little stronger. Which, here's a couple of quotes from her dissent. She says, the introduction of a te- – here she's citing Crawford. She says, the introduction of a testimonial statement from an unavailable declarant – Violates the confrontation clause unless the defendant had a prior opportunity for cross examination. Now, of course, this gets into this testimonial, you know, nice. distinction. But it doesn't matter because, for the purposes now, because even if it weren't testimony a testimonial statement would still violate it. Um, Um, And and she was a
1: criminal defense attorney, and so she she has a a lot of firsthand uh, uh, understanding of how the system works, maybe how limiting instructions is a
0: practical matter, won't do the trick. Right, and so she goes on to say, when the government attempted to nonetheless introduce Stilwell's inculpatory confession, notwithstanding Samia's inability to cross-examine him, it sought an exception from the confrontation clauses exclusion mandate. And then she goes on to say there's only one case where it's provided that um, Richardson versus Marsh 1987 um, and in in the end the uh, the justices and the majority are saying well we have a presumption that the jurors are going to be able to follow these these instructions. But then you know in in the what is it uh, in Bruton, they don't believe that. Okay. So now it so they, so they've now, you know, said, well, actually, we don't believe that they're going to follow that presumption when we name the defendant or if we, or if we insert a blank instead of the name. So here, yeah, you know, right. you're really getting, you're splitting hairs in, in, in yes. terms of, of what the instruction can say, what the testimony can say. And so the two jury uh, solution is so much cleaner uh, than that. So and that uh, two jury four
1: clauses. Okay? Maybe that can be the title of, of our episode. I am reading the confrontation clause somewhat narrowly. But I'm reading the compulsory process clause to help pick, uh, take up the slack. Okay, even if in certain situations someone's not a witness, uh, merely an out of court declarant so that the con- and the confrontation clause isn't triggered, but you can always ordinarily force them to testify by compelling them and I'm going to um, allow you to cross examine them and treat them as hostile and and go after them. And whether or not there's a confessing co-defendant or even a co-defendant, I'm going to let you actually force all sorts of people onto the stand and I'm not going to let their Fifth Amendment self-incrimination claim trump your Sixth Amendment compulsory process claim because the only thing that they're going to get is narrow immunity that their words um, will never be introduced against In in a criminal case brought against themselves, and by the way, the government is now all the wiser because it can use fruits, and and the defendant can use fruits. Everyone can use fruit, Um, and of course, this is going to square better with what the word "witness" means in the treason clause as well. It doesn't just refer to any out-of-court declarant or something whose utterance is, is, is introduced for the truth of the matter asserted. So, I'm trying to actually make sense of all the clauses and their purposes. And it's going to help defendant in this case. It's actually going to help the government in all sorts of other cases because they could use fruits. I think we would pre- we preserve efficiency in the main with the two jury solution. Now, Andy, here's uh, now my confession at the end. I confess. And you remember I, was, I kept saying I confess he did it. You know, people that turn, I confess, Andy, I didn't do it. Meaning I should have actually been paying more attention to this case. As it was bubbling up, I didn't. I should have ideally written an amicus brief, a short one, sort of outlining this middle ground solution that I think is uh, tries to accommodate the concerns of Justices Kagan and Jackson about fairness to the defendant with the efficiency concerns of the majority and encouraging them to actually rethink self-incrimination doctrine in the process. That would be a a boon to the the government in other situations. And it would be true seeking. That's what I should have done because I actually am an academic expert on this and related issues. And the court decided me in other cases for this and related propositions. And you've been telling me, Andy, forever, this is what you should do. You should pay attention before the cases reach the Supreme Court and see if you have any expertise. We only did it once last year. And I say we because it was you along with Vic and and yours truly and Steve Calabresi. But going forward, I think actually I should try to pay more attention to all the cases before they're decided. And if I've got something to say, say it ahead of time, which I didn't do. Mea culpa. I confess.
0: And think about all the great Grist gave for our mill and America's Constitution with Moore versus Harper. Talk yeah. about it as we're writing the brief. Okay, well, so audience, maybe more briefs to look forward to in the future. And uh, you know, this so very interesting case. Just one last note: uh, this idea about multiple juries is not crazy. Um, it's been done, you know, before, and uh, we actually saw there was an article in the Florida Bar Journal as far back as nineteen ninety nine called. Joint criminal trials with multiple juries, um, why they're used and suggested ways to implement them. And they talk about situations very similar to this.
1: Let's, so. let's put that one up on the website, if
0: we can, Andy,
1: along with two very, uh, one very short piece that I wrote is about six pages or so called Confrontation Clause First Principles, and I was responding to Professor Friedman, who had a similar idea but slightly more Scalia-ish in his application. My way of thinking about it was actually more Thomas-like. And also a larger piece, Sixth Amendment, First Principles, and there's only four or five pages about the Confrontation Clause there, and our audience can take a look at that as well. Just to repeat, and self-servingly but but truthfully, these are things that the uh, justices have on multiple occasions in years past actually openly cited when thinking about
0: cases that are broadly related to this one. And uh, next week, I think you can be pretty sure that uh, we'll be weighing in on some of the biggest cases of the year that you've been waiting for for a long time. Yes, Um,
1: and let's hope they actually reach the merits in Moore versus Harper. Fingers crossed.
0: Yes, okay. Thank mm-hmm. you.